Hey guys, and welcome back to EMIGCAST. My name is Ramsey Selbach. I'm a fourth-year medical student at Oregon Health and Science University, and today we're going to be talking about the use of ultrasound in the emergency department. Dr. Daniel Hubbard has been kind enough to sit down with us today. He went to medical school and residency at OHSU and then completed his emergency medicine ultrasound fellowship at Hennepin County Medical Center. He's currently an assistant professor of emergency medicine and the emergency medicine ultrasound fellowship program director. He's wicked smart and sincerely an all-around great guy. So let's go ahead and get started. Talk a little bit about just how the landscape of ultrasound has changed from the time that even you're in medical school to residency to maybe fellowship and maybe after fellowship if things have changed as far as accessibility to machines, um, how you're using the machines to, to do exams, if you're doing different exams, um, just to give us a sense of how things have evolved in your career. Yes, I would say that, number one, I, I feel fortunate in that I have never really seen emergency medicine outside of a setting where ultrasound was valued as a useful tool. So I started out in emergency medicine before med school doing research at Hennepin County Medical Center, which is probably the best, if not you know, tied for the best, um, point-of-care ultrasound shop in the country because they've been doing it for 30 years, starting with people that, you know, they were worried had tamponade from stab wounds to now using it for almost every organ system. And every doc there, you know, the probably the worst doc there for ultrasound is better than, you know, a lot of places like gurus. And then after seeing that, I just sort of assumed that every ER doc was going to be good at ultrasound or would use it for, you know, a certain point of care Um uh, elements and then going to OHSU for for med school and residency. I was fortunate enough. My chair, Dr. Ma, is one of the has been a long a proponent for ultrasound and been a leader in ultrasound education. So I've never been outside of an environment really where people don't use ultrasound other than at like places that I've moonlight lighted. And so we're, it was actually after I graduated fellowship and just like working moonlighting jobs either during fellowship or after fellowship where I realized that there's a kind of mid career and late career ER docs that just were never exposed to this tool. And I mean, almost to a person, every single one of these people that I've talked to is interested and recognizes the value of the of the modality. But you know, it's like anything else where the later you're exposed to it in your career, the harder it is to get good at it. Um, so I think you know institutions like OHSU and South Carolina that have a medical school that's actually dedicated towards teaching medical students from you know the first you know you probably started doing ultrasound the first week of med school, right? Yeah, a little bit. You know, so the provost at OHSU is an incredible advocate for ultrasound. Unfortunately, I think she's going to retire at the end of this year, but she's been a really outstanding leader at um, getting this curriculum started early on. So as far as like the big change for me is that that was not there when I attended med school at OHSU. There are people interested in it. I kind of knew that it was a thing that people were doing. I guess I didn't really recognize how crucial it was to be trained in it, but I think there's there you know there's movements starting all over the country now with um, you know there's people like Chris Fox down at UCI who's done an incredible job at bringing medical student ultrasound education um, early and often. Like say OHSU is doing a good job. There's a lot of places now that have kind of recognized. Or I still think that there's like the majority of U.S. medical schools do not have a point of care ultrasound curriculum. 
Um, but that's definitely changing as people see, you know, the, the successes at places like South Carolina and OHSU and, and UCI. Can you talk a little bit about how the landscape of ultrasound within residency programs has changed and how it's been more integrated into programs these days? As far as from a residency standpoint, you know, the lands- the landscape now is that almost every ED residency, if not every ED residency, has ultrasound curriculum as part of their sort of like milestone requirements to graduate as an emergency physician. Um, and in some places, you know, the ultrasound is employed primarily as a for the fast, you know, which is kind of the bread and butter ultrasound. Um, so I'll talk to people from who graduated from various programs who learned how to do fast well and use it for that indication, but are not using ultrasound for heart and lung you know, which I think is the most important as an ER doc, or they're not using it for, you know, other, you know, procedures beyond just, uh, you know, abscess drainage. Um, so I think, I think a lot of people, as you see more and more people coming from places that have aggressive ultrasound programs are kind of bringing to their community practice, but, you know, there's still definitely a big difference between, um, you know, a place like, Hennepin, for example, that has an ultrasound in a lot of their acute care rooms and has multiple machines that are wall mounted, you know, versus um, other places where they might have one machine for the whole department mm-hmm. uh, or two. And, you know, and so that just the number of machines makes a big difference. So as a medical student that might be interested in ultrasound, what kind of things should we be looking for? in a residency program as we begin to interview and decide where we may be going in the future. Yeah, I guess, yes, yeah, so as far as the, I think the, I think from a residency standpoint, um, you know, if you're a med student interested in ultrasound, mm-hmm. uh, I think wanting to know what kind of ultrasound program your residency has makes a difference. Because mm-hmm. um, there's some residencies you will not get the same exposure as if you go to a place where the department is very aggressive and has a bunch of machines. And, um, and you know, I'm not talking about going to places that have, like, famous people on their ultrasound division, although that, you know, certainly would help, but I'm not a famous guy, you know, nobody cares what I think for the most part. Um, but just having people that are there on staff doing a good job of, like, educating the residents and making sure that their exposure is, you know, kind of tracking what they're doing so that they know that they're going to leave being competent. And I think that, you know, that, that is really hard and it takes a lot of uh, dedicated effort on, the, on behalf of the whole department. And there's some places that do it really, really well. Mm-hmm. And so, and you can kind of get a sense from the residents just asking them while you're on the interview trail as to like, how comfortable do you feel? Like, do you guys use it, you know, for more than just the fast? You know, mm-hmm. how much of is it, how much is it part of your like actual patient care? And I guess the thing I would, you know, the specific question I would ask is, do you actually make decisions based on your ultrasound? Mm-hmm. So, you know, I'm I'm not a radiologist. I'm never going to be as good as an ultrasound tech or radiologist in terms of like acquiring perfect images, or even in the interpretation of you know, especially the sort of more subtle things. But I make decisions every day using point of care ultrasound, and I do it on at least a third, if not half, of my patients, depending on if I'm working kids or adults and you know, how acute the illness is on that particular day. So if you're not going to make decisions on it based on what you're seeing, it's not worth learning, honestly. Mm-hmm. And so wherever you're looking for to train, 
one of the things you got to ask people is like, do they actually use the ultrasounds that they're getting to make decisions? Okay. And it seems like a simple concept, but it's not all that rare to have people sort of like going around scanning for fun, basically, and then they're going to order a formal scan because mm-hmm. they don't trust their results. Right. It's fine if you find something you know you're worried about it and you want to clarify, or you know you need to convince a surgeon to take you know the patient to the operating room based on an ultrasound result and maybe he or she doesn't feel comfortable with what you're finding you know so they need a formal radiology impression but you know it's supposed to be the point of of point of care ultrasound is that you're going to learn something that's going to influence your decision on the patient so as far as the residency you know what i see happen in residencies and like in our own residency at ohsu is i think there definitely has been an emphasis even from when i started residency six years ago to now and just people being interested in ultrasound and recognizing that it is a, a very useful tool beyond just is this person's belly full of blood who just got in a car accident. Right. Right. If you're thinking about ultrasound purely in that terms, I think you're missing the boat on like how powerful and how valuable this tool can be. Mm-hmm. It's not just a is this person. I mean, don't get me wrong. Fast is incredibly useful, but it's the number of times that I have a fast exam that changes a patient's disposition you know, as a as a fraction of the number of ultrasounds that I do that influence my decisions, the positive fast go immediately to the OR without going to CT mm-hmm. is, you know, it's less than 5% of the total amount of decisions that I'm making for ultrasound. Right. So it's, you know, and most of the stuff that I'm, most of the stuff that, you know, matters to me as an ER doc is why is this person hypotensive? Why is this person hypoxic? And, you know, me looking in their chest and in their belly and at their heart specifically how it's squeezing. And then as far as the postgraduate training stuff right. goes and mm-hmm. stuff goes, at least in the Portland metro, and I assume that this is, you know, a broader trend elsewhere in the country, is that private shops are recognizing that ultrasound is very valuable, at least under current uh, billing landscape. It's actually a financially valuable part of ED care mm-hmm. um, and I'm not saying the reason to do ultrasound is to bill for it but in as much as it is valuable it does add value to the patient encounter and mm-hmm. you can bill for it so ultrasound ultrasound programs are worth the time and effort that people are putting into them into the community and a lot of big community shops especially are hiring people mm-hmm. specifically to be in charge of their ultrasound quality assurance programs and education mm-hmm. So, you know, and that's something that I recognize just coming back to, I I trained in Minnesota for ultrasound and came back to Portland ultimately to do academics, but the number of job options that were available to me purely to do ultrasound QA in private groups was way more um, wide open than I think they would have been if I hadn't been ultrasound trained. Like if I didn't have that skill, I would not have had as many opportunities open to me. Okay. So... And how's it about from, you know, from sort of a practical hands-on clinical perspective, do you mm-hmm. think that there's a lot added and gained by doing that fellowship that otherwise wouldn't be, even if you ended up at a program that does have a strong ultrasound during residency? Yeah, I mean, I think, yeah, I think it depends on what you want to get out of it. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, it's it's totally, totally, totally valid if you are, in fact, I have, I have three third-year residents right now um, who really took it on themselves to get good at ultrasound during starting, like, the first part of their intern year. And all three of these people are, are really good at bedside ultrasound. Only one of them wants to do a fellowship because she wants to continue her kind of interest in 
in the field and hasn't decided if she wants to do academics or, or community yet. But the other two, you know, who just like took the lead to really get good at it are so good that, you know, for the vast majority of stuff that they need it for, hypoxia, hypotension, you know, gallbladders, appendixes, you know, procedural stuff, they have they have a foundation of knowledge that's like adequate to mm-hmm. you know to really do ultrasound at a, at a high level um, in the in whatever job they decide to take, and some programs are more likely to graduate people like that, and it mm-hmm. kind of depends on how aggressive the you know the overall attending group is in the program. Um, so I would say you know if you come from a program that you know everybody all the attendings are really good at it and you're doing it all the time. You may not need to do it purely if your if your interest isn't just being good enough to practice. Um, if you want to work on advancing the field or do research or get a job specifically to do QA, mm-hmm. doing an ultrasound fellowship definitely has a lot of. Um, you know, you basically have to do it if you want to be in those kind of roles. Right. But if you don't know anything about ultrasound, um, doing ultrasound is a uh, fellowship is valuable, and that you'll get the skill. But, you know, it is a trade-off. I mean, you give up, you know, in some cases, a couple hundred thousand dollars of, you know, opportunity cost to do it. Yeah. But, uh, you know, it just depends what you want to do. And then sort of off topic, but just as far as, you know, fees go, and you mentioned being lucrative for the hospital, Mm -hmm. do you feel like as there's sort of more of a movement for moving away from fee-for-service to, like, bundling payments, do you think that'll affect ultrasound or maybe even have a negative effect on ultrasound? You know, I don't know the answer to that. Mm -hmm. Um... I think the the bundling payments thing is going to have effects on healthcare that none of us can predict. Mm-hmm. Um, I have no idea how it will alter. Um, you know, as far as like what what do, what I do as an academic, um, you know, the vast majority of ultrasounds that I do are for educational purposes, um, and you know, I, the stuff that I bill for is primarily you know heart and lung stuff that like there isn't a readily available. Like there isn't a there isn't a radiology tech who comes to the bedside for a patient fast enough that's crashing and dying in front of me. Mm-hmm. It's just not possible, you know. Like especially when my ultrasound is like even faster. We have these amazing portable X-rays that will give you like the immediate view of what the X-ray looks like. But depending on how busy the X-ray technician is, he or she might be like swamp, you know, taking care of some other dying patients somewhere else in the hospital or on a trauma or something like that. And so there the the medical system just hasn't come up with something that's faster and you know and the, the sensitivity and specificity characteristics of ultrasound for pulmonary edema and pneumothorax and you know a lot of the stuff that you know x-ray it just isn't as good as. Mm-hmm. Um, you know ultrasound is better for a lot of that stuff. So I don't see ultrasound going away for that mm-hmm. reason. You know, if the if it's not financially if it's not financially incentivized for some private groups and they have twenty four hour in house techs, you know, is point of care ultrasound useful for like early pregnancy and you know gallbladders and stuff? If you have a tech that's there twenty four seven, you know, it, some of that stuff probably will go away. I mean, I don't want it to obviously because I love ultrasound and I think it's useful, but I can I can definitely see a, an economic disincentive towards people pouring resources into getting a point of care ultrasound program up if it's not going to be if it's not going to pay for itself mm-hmm. and I feel like as a med student just observationally it seems like sometimes there's a perceived 
can be a perceived barrier to, to ultrasound as far as it just kind of it takes time yep. to go in and see the patient, yep. to acquire the images, to interpret mm-hmm. them. Mm-hmm. Can you talk a little bit about whether or not you feel like it slows you down or maybe makes you more efficient in the ED when you're using ultrasound? Yeah, I mean, so I think, you know, definitely in terms of the time spent in the room, you know, you it's ludicrous to say that it doesn't increase your time spent in the mm-hmm. room because you're going to spend another, you know, five minutes or whatever performing a point-of-care ultrasound on the patient. But, you know, in terms of the efficiency of what I'm ordering, I mean, so, for example, you know, the last time I looked at my metrics at my private job, at least the... I had the lowest imaging rate of anybody in the group by a fairly substantial margin. And part of that is that I didn't need imaging to help me figure out what was going on because I could figure out from the ultrasound what was happening. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, you know, that's, you know, there's an efficiency there as well, you know, because you don't have to send your patient off to x-ray or they're not going over to the CT scanner and you're not waiting for them to come back. So you definitely save time. You know, so it's, it's a little bit of a push. Like I'm certainly no less efficient or slower than average in the group and I spend a lot more time at the bedside doing uh, ultrasound and you know there's also part of it is like while you're scanning the patient you're also asking them a bunch of other questions about what's happening and you're learning mm-hmm. about them so just that you know I, I'm sort of the, this is not a novel thing for me to say that the art of physical exam has been lost and by the way it was you know, had been destroyed long before I ever got into med school. You know, right. the advent of labs and, and advanced imaging. And I mean, other than antibiotics, like advanced imaging is like the best thing that happened to patients in like 50 years. Like the, there's a reason that somebody won the Nobel Prize for the CT scan. Right. It's because it, you know, the diagnosis used to have to be made by laparotomy for a lot of this stuff, you yeah. know. And so the, you know, the fact that, that somebody's invented something that you can go to the patient's bedside and look inside their body mm-hmm. to augment, you know, your physical exam. And we know that, you know, even in, even in the best of hands, there's a, there's like a textbook, I forget who the author is, but it has like the, it's updated every year or every five years or so and has like the sensitivity specificity oh, right, characteristics right. Mm-hmm. you probably... For physical exam. Yeah, you probably yeah. read it at some point in med school. I have a copy somewhere in my on my shelf. But so to think that, you know, like the sensitivity specificity characteristics for JVD or mm-hmm. pedilidema, you know, maybe in like the best of hands. I, I, I'm not, don't quote me numbers, right. but let's imagine it's like 80% specific yeah. for CHF. Whereas like the finding of B-lines with a decreased left ventricular ejection fraction, you know, approaches 90%, you know. Right. Actually, there's this article from March of this year on diagnosing acute heart failure in the ED. Mm-hmm. The, the most, the best finding, including chest x-ray BNP, is point-of-care ultrasound showing B-lines. Nice. You know, which is uh-huh. pretty amazing that, you know, like all this other stuff and like all these labs and all this time we spend talking to people and taking these like elegant histories and I'm not again I'm not trying to tell you that the history is not important but right a positive lung ultrasound being more useful than an elevated BNP or pulmonary edema on chest x-ray at making the diagnosis of of CHF is that's pretty amazing right and it's I mean granted there might be a charge that you bill a patient for but it's basically free and it's and it's not harming the patient for you to put an ultrasound probe on their chest and look for beelines. Mm-hmm. So, okay. um, and you mentioned, you kind of touched on this briefly, but you know, the ability of ultrasound to sort of raise your threshold for getting CT scan sounds like for you is significant. 
and you feel like having that skill has allowed you to get less CT scans and mm-hmm. be more comfortable doing that. Would you agree with that? Yeah, and I think it's also like allowed me to sort of intelligently order CT scans. So, for example, um, if an old person has abdominal pain and I see their entire you know abdominal aorta from the diaphragm all the way down to the bifurcation mm-hmm. and it's not dilated, I know it's not a AAA. Right. You know, it could be a dissection, um, but, you know, as far as, like, what you're looking for, um, depending on where the pain is and stuff, so I'm not ordering CTs to do that, you know, mm-hmm. or if I, I mean, so so gallstone and cholecystitis is another thing, so I may need a formal image of some kind to get a surgeon to take patients to the operating room, but if I see cholecystitis on a bedside ultrasound, I'm not going to order a CT, you know, wondering if I'm missing anything else. I'm going to order the formal right upper quadrant ultrasound right. to get what's to figure out what's going on. Um, so it's like that kind of stuff. I think is really, you know, it definitely speeds up, you know, what you're looking for and mm-hmm. speeds the patient's um, flow through the ER. Right. And you know, along with that, currently I, I feel like the use of ultrasound is sort of patient guided based on their complaint, like. Mm-hmm. We're not using like a stethoscope yet where we take our stethoscope to see every single patient, right? right. Um, I actually there... don't take my stethoscope to see every yeah. patient. Okay. <laughs> yeah. I don't think it's that useful at all, but... Right. Yeah. Um, are there specific patients that when you see on the board or see get rolled back where you're like, okay, I'm 100% taking the ultrasound... Mm-hmm to evaluate this patient other than sort of, you know, the crashing patient with abdominal pain. Uh, oh, know. no, I mean, I would say every patient who's hypoxic mm-hmm. um, or says they feel short of breath or has chest pain, okay. I look. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, because there's, you know, especially like for these like short of breath people, undiagnosed congestive heart failure is so common. Mm-hmm. And it happens, it happens, you know, at least a couple times a month where... Um, I get somebody and sign out and, you know, kind of the working diagnosis, they have COPD or they have like a little pneumonia or something. And then I go and look at them and, uh, you know, they have a a really bad ejection fraction or at least a depressed ejection fraction and they have sort of diffuse B lines. Right. And, you know, and then just the point is that that x-ray is not great for finding pulmonary edema. Mm-hmm. And pulmonary edema is going to show up earlier on ultrasound than it will on x-ray. So one of the other things I wanted to ask about are just you know notable stories that come to mind that you using ultrasound really changed the trajectory of either how you were caring for that patient or the outcome of that patient. Just any you know significant stories that sort of pop into mind that, um, that you want to share. Yeah, so I think um, like probably like the most notable recent one is uh, a guy with a type B dissection that I diagnosed within five minutes of meeting him. Basically, he was complaining of leg pain, so I put the ultrasound on his leg, you know, worried that he had a, um, an arterial thrombus, basically looking for flow. Um, I basically saw that his like entire femoral artery was obliterated and I was like, oh, that doesn't look like a thrombus, it looks like a dissection mm-hmm. flap, um, really totally being scrunched up. And then I basically switched to the abdominal probe, so I was using the linear probe, I switched to the abdominal probe and put it on his abdomen. You know, he had this five or six centimeter abdomen, um, abdominal aorta that had a dissection flap running through it. And then, you know, I just moved up into his chest and I could also see that his um, descending thoracic aorta was really big. Mm-hmm. 
And then looking at his aortic root actually was not dilated um, and he didn't have an effusion and he didn't have um, aortic insufficiency. So with those things, I was fairly confident that he at least had a type B. You know, I couldn't really see much into his neck uh, just because of his body habitus. But I knew with 100% certainty or, you know, as close as I could get that, you know, he had a, at least a, a type B dissection. Mm-hmm. Um, and I basically called the CT tech and I said, hey, I need you to you know, put on hold every other scan that you have coming next. And this, this is the next person that needs to go. And I called the radiologist ahead of time and told him what I was worried about. And, you know, it basically just like sped everything up. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, depending on your level of experience or what you're used to seeing, you know, some people may have started with a formal ultrasound of that guy's leg, mm-hmm. you know, and then had the radiology tech tell them an hour and a half later that, oh, yeah, we should probably look in this guy's belly because it doesn't really look like a thrombus. Right. Because um, the guy didn't have chest pain, by the way, at the time that he came in, he came in complaining of leg pain. So it's like that kind of stuff. I mean, that, that's kind of like a, you know, awesome, like once every few months kind of story. Um, it's like a really sexy story, but it's not like the reason why I do it. Right. Um, I, I would say, that, you know, for me, the main thing is why is this person short of breath? And again, it's like that I spent all this time working at the Portland VA Medical Center as a resident, like not being able to figure out like why these guys were short of breath. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I'd start with some beta agonists and some fluids because I thought they had COPD and then they'd get flash pulmonary edema because I overloaded them with fluids and, you know, gave them, you know, made their heart beat real fast, which is like really bad for somebody whose EF sucks. Um, you know, and so, and then you end up diuresing them and chasing your tail. And it's like that kind of stuff is so frustrating that, uh, just doing heart lung ultrasound every day. I mean, it happens every single day, multiple times that I use it. Um, you know, much like you would examine the heart and lungs with your stethoscope, it's just so much better. And then I'm trying to think of other notable things. I mean, I think, you know, in code situations where you can sort of like just help it guide what you're doing, you know, is the heart still moving? Do you need to call this thing? Do they have an effusion that you're going to drain, you know, because they have tamponade? Do they... There's, it hasn't happened to me yet, but there's cases um, that I've talked to multiple people where they've actually seen very fine ventricular fibrillation that doesn't show up on the monitor. Hmm. So that's a person that can be shocked still, which has a much better prognosis than just, you know, PEA arrest or asystole. Right. Um, so that kind of stuff, um, like the idea of going into a cardiopulmonary arrest without ultrasound terrifies me. I don't know how anybody does it. Right. Um, just cause you know, if you're not in a shockable, if you don't have a shockable rhythm and you're in PEA, the differential for PEA includes pneumothorax, hypovolemia, um, tamponade. Like those are three things that you can see with ultrasound. Like if they have hypovolemia, their ventricle has like a hundred percent ejection fraction. Mm-hmm. That person doesn't need you to push on their chest and like fracture their ribs and, you know, their heart is squeezing fine. They just need volume. Right. So maybe it's got tamponade. Pushing on that person's chest is not going to help that much. Mm-hmm. Their heart's not filling because <laughs> of the tamponade. That person needs you to drain the fluid from around their heart. If they have, you know, tension physiology from a pneumothorax, they don't need you to push on their chest. Maybe you'll get lucky and break their rib and then, like, somehow, like, puncture their skin and then drain their um, air out of their <laughs> chest that way. But, no, they need you to, you know, put in a chest tube or needle and decompress them. So it's like that kind of thing where, you know, granted a lot of people in PEA are, are going to die. And so it's not like every other case, you know, mm-hmm. the ultrasound like changes the management. But 
it happens often enough that the management is changing, is meaningful what you're doing, that the idea of doing any kind of like ACLS code without an ultrasound, it's fine if you're at the football stadium, you know, or at the mall or wherever you are that, you know, the person dies in front of you, but it's not fine in the ER. Mm-hmm. Um, it's actually ridiculous to think that you would do, even in the hospital, like there's no reason why an in-hospital code and somebody who's just like codes on, you know, a medical surgical floor, that there's not an ultrasound present while people are pushing on their chest and trying to figure out what's going on. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, I think those are the things for me, you know, just the sort of like bread and butter day in, day out of the short of breath person, the confidence that you're going to not be missing, you know, uh, or wasting time on tamponade or pneumothorax or hypovolemia in a, in a, in a cardiac arrest situation. Um, cause there's nothing that feels worse than like doing the wrong thing for 20 minutes only to figure out that it was something that you could have intervened on sooner. Right. And then, uh, you know, like the, the stuff that like delights me, but again, it's not like a, you know, like the aortic dissection stuff is really fun to find, you know, um, but it's like stuff that you can, and I'm not saying that bedside ultrasound is going to replace the utility of expert consultation or a CT, but if you find this stuff, like a lot of these findings, you know, they might not have a very high sensitivity, mm-hmm. but they have a really high specificity. Right. And so when people argue against doing bedside ultrasound because the sensitivity is not high enough, well, your exam, your physical exam sensitivity sucks, you know, a right. lot of time. Um, and the other formal stuff, you know, it, it takes time to get, and sometimes people are too unstable. Um, or the, there's too many patients, you know, and they have to like wait in line. So if you can find something that is specific, you know, that answers your question, mm-hmm. it just makes things happen for the patient that much faster. Right. You don't waste time on unknown diagnoses. Like I hate the sort of like, oh, we're going to admit this person because we're feeling short of breath and we're not sure why, mm-hmm. you know, and they haven't looked at the heart to sort of figure out what the heart's doing. They haven't, you know, they've got a chest X-ray, which is like maybe or maybe not helpful because the person has like, underlying lung disease and you can't tell and there's just like very obvious things that you can find in some of these folks that just like makes their care go a lot better and just like makes you make the right decision for them like sooner rather than like discovering by accident you know six hours later that you were doing the wrong thing Mm -hmm. um and you know kind of along with that as as the technology advances and machines come cheaper and more accessible and smaller yeah and you know the images are better. What what do you feel like the the future is like? Do you think that at some point the use of ultrasound is just going to be part of the standard physical exam rather than like a point of care test that's driven by a complaint? That's a good question. I, again, I think it depends on I think it depends on each um, each group of patients and what those practitioners want to use it for. I mean, so obviously like, you know, we live in a world where, you know, our brains just aren't good enough to like learn all of medicine. It's too complicated. And so Mm -hmm. we live in a world where medicine has been like highly schismed and there's like a person for the right kidney and the left kidney and, you know, this kind of heart failure and that kind of heart failure. And that's fine. I mean, we, we need this expertise to like, you know, really like take care of this stuff, you know, like at certain levels. But as far as like, you know, most, ER docs are general practitioners. Mm-hmm. And those of us who are general practitioners need to have some way of figuring out what's happening with our patients. And like the ideal doctor would be somebody that, you know, knows all of medicine and then can like figure out, can make, can do diagnostic stuff and do the interventions. And obviously that's like, it's not ever going to happen. But as far as like being a generalist practitioner, and, and by that I'm saying 
an ER doc, an internal medicine physician, a general surgeon, a um, pediatrician, like when you're dealing with undifferentiated patients, being able to figure out what's happening both with like why you think they why you think they're in bad shape and then but then also what might make them sicker as you're treating them. So for example, probably the sickest patient I took care of last week was an old guy who was getting shocky. I didn't know why. I ended up diagnosing him with acute cholecystitis, acalculus cholecystitis. But as I was talking to him and looking at him, because he also kind of felt short of breath, his EF was really bad. And that wasn't new. I learned later by looking through his chart. But his, his EF was bad. He, needed, he was septic, so I had to resuscitate him with a bunch of fluids. But that whole time I was following him and like basically fluid resuscitated him to the point where his lungs got like full of fluid, you know, because he like developed pulmonary edema in front of me. And then, you know, I started pressers um, at that point. And it's like one of those things where because I know how to follow people's physiology with ultrasound, I didn't do anything dangerous to this guy. And I actually like resuscitated him quite elegantly, um, you know, in a way that like he got enough fluids he didn't have to be intubated or crashed onto BiPAP, you know, like that sort of thing. And so it's just sort of the, and who knows, maybe I would have gotten there on my own, but, you know, I wasn't surprised by anything, you know, mm -hmm. like I wasn't surprised when he developed pulmonary edema. I was expecting it and I knew how to look for it. And I kind of knew that that was going to be my end point for giving him more fluids because more fluids at that point would have made his lungs sicker. And, you know, his tank was full by that point, you know, mm -hmm. his IVC had become distended didn't any respiratory variation, like the tank was full, more fluids would have just like stretched his heart out more, probably like made his um, cardiac output suck more, mm -hmm. um, filled his lungs up with more fluid, with third space more fluid. And so it was sort of, I was done with that at that point and, you know, got him on depressors at the right time. And so that's the sort of thing where I see that, you know, your question is, is it going to be part of the physical exam rather than just answering point of care questions. I think the answer is both. Mm -hmm. You know, I think no matter what you do in medicine, you have questions that you need to answer. And, you know, and so a lot of specialists, for example, use ultrasound to answer their questions. I talked to a delightful ophthalmologist the other day and a guy that I was taking care of that I was worried had a vitreous hemorrhage. I got a point of care ultrasound, sent him the iPhone photo of what it was and he said, yeah, I agree with you. And he said, you know, this guy's got a really complicated case of diabetic retinopathy, and he actually needs to see me in clinic today because of what you found. And then he sent me his images, which were way better than mine, but he also has, you know, more expertise with that organ system and better equipment. Mm -hmm. But the point is, is that he and I could have a conversation that was much more meaningful based on what I had seen on ultrasound with his, you know, a patient that we both had cared for. Um, and it got his attention much more so than if I said, oh yeah, his vision kind of sucks again today. Mm -hmm. He's seeing some floaters, like that doesn't really help him. You know, like his, his, uh, this, this ophthalmologist's ability to do an ocular exam and take a history that like really hones in on the, the differential diagnosis better than mine. Right. But that ultrasound image was very, very helpful in like getting him to say, oh yeah, this guy needs to come see this guy now. And, mm -hmm. And so it's like that kind of stuff where I think that, you know, I'm not going to, I'm not going to do an ocular ultrasound on every patient that I'm meeting. Right. Um, much in the same way that you don't do a comprehensive, you know, anybody that says they do a comprehensive physical exam on every patient mm -hmm. they meet is lying to you. Right. Um, 
but uh, unless they're like one of those docs that does like disability exams, you know, to try to like have insurance companies avoid paying um, disability or whatever. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I mean, I think it's definitely part of the. I mean, it makes more sense if you're screening somebody who's short of breath to actually look and see how well their heart's squeezing rather than to sort of like see if you can hear. I can't hear an S4. I'll be honest with you. I think right. I heard one once in med school, and I. You know, bought myself a cake afterwards. You know, I was so happy. Yeah. Um, but it's. Uh, I think I think the answer is both. And you know, as people get smarter about what the images mean and the technology gets better, mm-hmm. then those point of care questions will be easier to answer. So the future, for example, like one of the futures of ultrasound is right now there are machines available on the market that will look at how well your myocardium is squeezing Mm -hmm. and give you a strain analysis report. And, you know, so one of the theories in cardiac pathophysiology is that if you have chest pain and you have an acute wall motion abnormality, Mm -hmm. you have ischemia. And that if you have chest pain and you don't have a wall motion abnormality, it's not likely to be, you know, ischemic chest pain. You know, if you're actively having the pain and the heart is squeezing normally, it's not likely to be, you know, coronary artery occlusion etiology of the pain. So some people are starting to use screening ultrasound with strain analysis to look at how well the heart is squeezing. If somebody has like an abnormal ECG that's all concerning or they're having chest pain sore that's concerning, and they have a normal squeeze, mm-hmm. it makes it much less likely that that person is having an acute coronary syndrome right. um, in that moment. Well, we'll have to see how the studies bear out with that. And again, I'm not sure if it's accepted as um, dogma or you know whatever. I know dogma has negative connotations. If it's totally accepted that you know you have to have you know if you have truly ischemic chest pain, you must have a wall motion abnormality. I'm not sure if people fully believe that, but I know there's mm-hmm. a lot of people that do believe that. Mm-hmm. And so just the idea that perhaps someday with, you know, technology-assisted decision-making, you know, because the machine is way better than I am at saying if there's wall motion abnormality. Right. You know, like in order to really comment, like, I mean, I did an ultrasound fellowship, unless the wall motion abnormality is totally obvious... I'm not as good as a cardiologist and, you know, there's, there's cardiologists at the university, for example, um, actually some of the, this guy, Jonathan Linder is like one of the best in the world Mm -hmm. at Echo, um, and a delightful human being and a great teacher. You know, if you take somebody like him and he's looking at, you know, Echo images and he thinks that there's no emotionality, he's probably right. Right. You take somebody like me and I look at the images and, you know, if it's like a subtle thing, I'm not going to be able to tell. Mm -hmm. Whereas the machine... The machines, I think, are going to be able to tell. Okay. And that's pretty exciting to think that, you know, as a ER doc at the bedside, there might be a future in which we can take somebody that's having active chest pain, put the ultrasound on their heart, and if the machine says it's normal, we might be able to say, hey, you know what, this is unlikely to be an acute coronary syndrome. Right. Now, if there's something abnormal and you've never met the patient before, it could be an old process, it could be a new process, you know, mm-hmm. that's a different question. But just the idea, I mean, we've been trying for years to figure out who with acute chest pain can go home and the, you know, the ultra-sensitive troponins and 
all this kind of stuff. And it's just a really hard problem. And the, um, the consequences of betting wrong are really dire. Yeah. So anything that we can do to help assist that, I think is pretty exciting. Yeah. So that's, that's what I'm, that's what I'll, that's what I'm hopeful is going to be in the future. Mm-hmm. And I think a lot of it just depends on how good the machine's in. And somebody who's a lot smarter than me is going to have to figure out how to appropriately select the patients for that kind of, a uh, um, assessment. Mm-hmm. But I think that's definitely in the future. Um, and then finally, as you know, a medical student or people that are new, newer learners mm-hmm. to ultrasound, like what one piece of advice would you say to, to help us get better at ultrasound? Mm-hmm. So I would say practice is the main thing. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, it's, you would, the, actually my fellowship director, um, it's like his joke. So I'm going to steal this from Robert and I can credit him for that. And so he would say, if somebody gave you a video game, you would never just like, you know, open the manual and read through the whole. Remember, you grew up in the era of like the Nintendo Entertainment yeah. System. Remember, you said, did your parents ever let you get one? Yeah. Okay. Yeah, mine too. So like, you would you would get the box and you'd open it up and the cartridge would be in there and there'd be this like thirty page booklet. If it was Legend of Zelda, maybe been sixty pages, and there was like all these instructions on like how to play the game and stuff. Mm-hmm. And there's probably like maybe you know one out of you know six million children that like actually read the manual thoroughly before playing it. You would never do that. You would just like slam the cartridge in and fire it up and just as soon as possible start playing and experimenting with it. Right. It's the same thing with ultrasound. If your like plan to learn ultrasound is to do a really circumspect reading of all the literature and get a textbook that has only like two-dimensional images where nothing is moving and it's all in black and white and you're mm-hmm. gonna read like all these studies from 30 years ago or whatever, that's fine. I mean the knowledge base is important, but in terms of like as a, as a point of care ultrasound provider, and again, I'm not talking about like radiologists, like mm-hmm. radiologists have a different standard, like they're responsible for everything on the image. I'm not saying that ER docs can't be responsible for what's on there, but when you're an ER doc, the point is for you to make a decision about the patient at the time that you're getting the image. Mm-hmm. You know, you're never going to replace, I mean, radiologists are like some of the most important physicians in modern era because of how good they are at figuring out pathology. But, you know, most of them aren't at the bedside examining the patient or listening to them and hearing them, seeing them. So that's why, like, radiologists get really mad, and reasonably so, when you just put in, like, chest pain. Right. Or you right. order an MRI without any indication. Like, they yeah. have to know something clinical about the patient so that, they, so that he or she can help you figure out what's happening to them. But if you're talking to the patient and you see what they look like and you kind of fit it with the other patients that you've seen and you have a specific question that you want to answer, mm-hmm. you you have to be able to do that. And the only, the only way you're ever going to be able to do that is by scanning hundreds, if not thousands of patients, just in the same way as like you're examining patients. Right. You're not going to be able to hear murmurs until you've like listened to thousands of hearts and hear what they're supposed to sound like. Right. You don't know what a dehydrated person looks like until you've seen hundreds of them to sort of look in their mouth or dry, like what their mm-hmm. skin looks like. Same thing with belly pain. You're not going to be able to figure out, you know, what appendicitis, you know, both in the like textbook presentation and the abnormal presentation looks like without seeing a ton of people with belly pain mm-hmm. with appendicitis. So it's the same way with ultrasound. So just kind of reps, a lot of reps. Got to do the reps, yeah. you know. So if you are on a rotation and there's an ultrasound available to you. Mm-hmm. I mean, let's be honest, as a med student, you know, your patient burden is pretty low. Yeah. Um, and that's fine. Like, that's what we want, right? Yeah. Like, I, I expect that while you're in the discovery phase of your education, that you're going to take time to talk to the people, you know, uh-huh. 
you know, history is like the most important part of medicine. So nothing that you do is ever going to replace being able to talk. We've been trying for hundreds of years to figure out a way not to talk to patients. Yeah. But you still have to talk to them. And then while you're doing that history, you can be scanning them and, you know, just like looking at, you just have to look at everything that you can to get good at acquiring images. Mm -hmm. And then, you know, you'll see, you'll see all kinds of incidental stuff. You'll see people with heart failure that aren't in acute decompensation. They just, their heart sucks. You'll see that while you're looking for something else. Mm -hmm. And the more of that stuff you can see, the better you're going to recognize it, you know, when the situation comes up. You know, you've heard that thing like the... The I can't see what the mind doesn't know. It's the same thing. With all, it's, you know, you're the only way you're ever going to be able to recognize abnormal stuff on ultrasound or be reassured that something is normal is by practicing. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, and, and part of the practice is like, it really has to be, um, you have to have some kind of a mindful practice right. and the expectation that somebody's going to be standing there with you, helping you interpret stuff. I think that's where a lot of people go wrong. I mean, the ideal situation is that you would have the world expert in point-of-care sonography next mm-hmm. to you all the time with, like, a radiologist at the same time, you know, mm-hmm. like, a, how to position the probe and, you know, what to look for right. so you're not, like, you know, doing all of your, like, brand-new learning on patients. Mm-hmm. But you really have to, I mean, you just, you cannot get hundreds of hours of ultrasound practice if somebody's supposed to be standing there next to you. Right. It's not possible. Yeah. Unless, in the, unless you have millions of dollars that you're willing to throw at your education and hiring people to follow you around, mm-hmm. you know, it's just not going to happen. You're just never going to get good at it if you expect that somebody's going to be there right. supervising you the whole time. And, and again, I'm not saying world that, you know, you should just go out there and scan all these patients without telling anybody what you're sure. doing and stuff. Yeah. But like, so for example, you know, it's, um, I find it very helpful when I'm working with med students, if they are taking care of a patient they go in and start the exam and then uh-huh. let me know that they want me to just pop by if they'd seen something they don't know about, you know, I'm going to, I'm going to mm-hmm. look at it with them. But just the idea that somebody's going to, who knows, I'm going to get in trouble for saying this, the idea that yeah. like, somebody's going to be there supervising you and proctoring you the whole time until you're like an attending, that's just not going to happen. Right. Or maybe even just do like some chart stocking, see if you can find any, you know, notable pathology and then scan it after you know it's Oh, there. yeah. No, I think, yeah. yeah. No, I think that's a great, yeah. Thanks for bringing mm-hmm. that idea up. Yeah. That's actually, mm-hmm. so how I basically did my whole fellowship was, um, you know, I would go in and take a stab at figuring out what was happening with somebody. Mm-hmm. And then either, you know, I'd ask my fellowship director, hey, uh, what do you think this is? And he would tell me. Or you take somebody that, you know, they have pneumonia. Right. You go in and say, hey, I know you got pneumonia. I'm going to go and find it yeah. on ultrasound. Yeah, that's yeah. a great that's a great thing. Cool. Yeah, and so if you're on like a, if you're on IM rotation and you're, you've admitted, you know, only half the service at that time has CHF, mm-hmm. um, you know, yeah. take a look at both sets of patients and compare their hearts. Right. So you can figure out what CHF looks like. And, yeah. you know, some of them are going to have shit hearts uh where their EFs are ten percent and some are gonna have, you know, twenty percent, some are gonna have forty percent. Right. Take a look and see the difference between those three groups of people are because yeah. it's important to be able to figure that out in the moment. Yeah. And then do you have any just kind of final thoughts or things that you wanna put out there and you don't have to if you don't want to Oh yeah, no I would I would say that my final thought is like regardless of what you go into and regardless of what kind of it maybe psychiatrists don't need to learn ultrasound. But it's hard for me to think of a group of doctors that would not benefit from some... Let me say it this way. If your job involves taking care of acutely undifferentiated patients, you're deluding yourself if you don't think that ultrasound is useful to you. Right. 
If you are a specialist who takes care of people with already identified pathology, you're probably already using ultrasound because it helps you answer specific questions. Mm-hmm. Um, it's hard for me to think of a group of doctors that doesn't either take care of acutely undifferentiated patients mm-hmm. or take care of already identified pathology that they need to follow. Right. And so, um, or, or render an opinion on. So in almost, you know, so during my fellowship, um, the urology residents at my fellowship were really interested in how, you know, I diagnosed hydronephrosis because they would make decisions on it in their clinic. Mm-hmm. They were really interested in how I diagnosed testicular torsion because they recognized there were some cases where an ultrasound tech would not be available soon enough to make a decision or to attempt manual detorsion. OBs, you know, have been actually, OBGYN have been you know, probably even more than any other group of doctors at like recognizing that they need to be experts at that organ system. Mm-hmm. And, you know, most of the OB GYNs I know are phenomenally good at point of care ultrasound for um, uterine and ovarian and pregnancy related um, issues. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, a lot of general surgeons are starting to get hip to the idea that maybe they should be able to diagnose gallbladders and appendicitis recognize fluid collections, you know, in their post-op patients or on mm-hmm. wounds, that kind of stuff. Um, certainly cardiologists have, um, you know, taken the lead on echo. Um, ICU docs are recognizing that resuscitation, you know, ultrasound-guided resuscitation and management is important. Internal medicine physicians are... So I, this is actually an interesting vignette. So when I went... Um, when I taught in Japan a couple of years ago, I talked to a vascular surgeon there who told me, you know, because well, I learned in med school, I'm not sure if they taught you at OHSU, um, you know, while, you, while you've been there. But when I was at OHSU, they taught me that ruptured abdominal aortic aneurysm was like the 14th leading cause of death in the United States. Mm-hmm. That just can't be true. <laughs> I've only seen it a couple of times when we die of a AAA. Right. So unless there's like all these like people at home that, you know, never make to the ER, mm-hmm. you know, and there's just like this lurking triple a epidemic out there and the reason that it's just not happening as much anymore is that you know point not necessarily point of care but ultrasound is such a good screening modality for triple a and the vascular surgeons have really come up with some pretty amazing you know endovascular techniques and stuff to sort of like reduce the morbidity of a triple a repair so this guy in japan told me that like his thought was that triple a was like almost vanishing as a significant cause of mortality in older persons because they had such a really a good point of care or not or a screening you know system in place mm-hmm. for triple uh, a and now the you know so the natural thing for me is like why does that have to always be done through a formal test right a triple a scan is relatively easy to do and if you're honest about what your skill set is you could make it part of your annual physical exam as a primary care doc. Right. And in cases where you couldn't see it or you didn't think you did a good enough job, you could then get a formal, mm-hmm. you know, so it's the stuff like that. So I think there's a lot of stuff that, um, you know, just for primary care screening, you know, for thyroid nodules and, you know, for undiagnosed congestive heart failure, there's a lot of stuff that, that, you know, any group of doctors could could use it for yeah so i mean ultimately we just want to say thanks for having you know joining us on evening cast we really appreciate oh, yeah. your thoughts and taking the time to to sit down with us oh yeah. you're you're welcome man. Anytime. Thank you.